want to talk to you this morning about why God loves Mondays. It uh, may actually come as a surprise to you, but uh, God loves Mondays. He really does. In fact, I kind of think maybe Mondays may be his favorite day of the week. Now, not so for us, right? Uh, Monday is the only day of the week that we don't thank God for. We thank God it's Friday. We even name restaurants after that. But not that it's Monday. Uh, we, we actually make money on how much we dislike Mondays. Look at this. Uh-oh. Guess what day it is. Guess what day it is. Huh? Anybody? Julie. Sound? Guess what day it is. Oh, come on. I know you can hear me. Mike, Mike, well, Mike, you've Mike. seen it, what haven't you? <laughs> Listen. Guess what, what today anyone? is. Know what day it is today? Come on, Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it? Happier folks who save hundreds of dollars switching to Geico. Okay, we make happier than a camel on Wednesday. We make Monday uh, money in advertising. I mean, we dislike Monday so much that we'll even thank God it's Wednesday. It's Hump Wednesday. Uh, so what happened that God loves Mondays and that we don't? Well, let me illustrate it with a true story. There's a man by the name of Stefan Breitweiser who was arguably the world's most consistently successful art thief. Over a period of seven years, he stole $2 billion worth of art from museums, auction rooms, and antique dealers all over France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Austria, lifting a total of... Uh, from a, uh, Lifting a total of 172 uh, from different 172 different venues, uh, and what he did with all of this art, uh, which a lot of it was 16th to 18th century uh, masterpieces, he would often go in if he was stealing a masterpiece. He'd cut it from the middle of the frame, roll it up, and stuff it under his coat and walk out. He stole bugles. Uh, vases, j just about anything you can think of, of uh, priceless value in these art museums. And then he went and they, he hid them at his mother's house. But he was caught one day by a keen-eyed security guard in Lucerne, Switzerland, when he came back a couple days after he had stolen a bugle from the same museum. The security guard recognized him, called the police. They arrested him. He confessed everything to Swiss police, giving them a full list of all the things he had stolen and from, well, from where, and telling them that he'd hid it all at his mother's house. But here's the kicker. When his mother uh, got news of his arrest, she went into action and destroyed almost all of the priceless treasure, throwing 109 artifacts into the Rhone-Rhine Canal and taking all those masterpieces and cutting them up into little squares and throwing them in the garbage. By the time authorities had obtained a search warrant one week after uh, her son's arrest, she had already succeeded in destroying most of the $2 billion worth of irreplaceable treasure. When she was apprehended by the police, uh, she said that she was so furious with her son for getting caught that she destroyed all of the art out of spite, fearing that because of his imminent conviction, the Swiss authorities might revoke her work permit and she'd be out of a job. Think of that. 
$2 billion worth of treasure, irreplaceable treasure, shredded and trashed out of fear, spite, and greed. I'd suggest to you this morning that um, work has suffered a similar fate. Ripped from its place of honor at the center of God's masterpiece of creation, it has been shredded and trashed ever since, and it is our privilege to restore it to that place of honor for which God intended it. So let me tell you another story that I think illustrates the centrality of the workplace in God's plan of redemption for the world. You heard me correctly. The centrality of what you do tomorrow morning in God's plan to redeem the world. There once was a man in the ancient city of Jericho whose name was Zacchaeus. He worked collecting taxes at the conquering Romans imposed upon their subjects. Zach wasn't a big man, as you probably know. He's probably the smallest man in town. But what he lacked in size, he made up for in smarts. For we are told that he had risen to the very top of the ladder in a very crooked business. So he was also very rich. Hearing that Jesus, this popular rabbi, was on his way to town, uh, Zacchaeus decided he wanted to get a look at this man that everyone was talking about. So we're told that he ran ahead of the crowd, he climbed up a tree and sat there and waited. When Jesus got to the spot, we're told that he stopped, he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down right now, I must stay at your house today. Well, Zacchaeus crawled down, I'm sure, brimming with pleasure, while everybody else bristled with anger, mumbling under their breath, is this rabbi nuts? He's eaten with a crook! He's eaten with the enemy! But that day Zacchaeus became a new man. Never had any religious leader ever given him so much as the time of day. And yet here this man, Jesus, was not ashamed to be identified with the likes of Zacchaeus. And before Jesus left that day, Zacchaeus said, Lord, I'm given half of everything I own to the poor, and if I have defrauded anybody in my business, I'll pay him back four to one. You do the math, he gave almost all his money away. No uh, one who rises to the top rung in a dirty business does it without having defrauded a few people, I'm sure. So even if you assume that maybe 10% of all of his earnings had come from fraud, that means uh, he's going to pay back, he's going to give 50% of all of his money away, and then he's going to pay back 4 to 1, not 10% but 40% of his earnings. In other words, he was probably out 90% of his earnings. Totally transformed man. And Jesus said, today this man, a true son of Abraham, is saved, he is forgiven, he is made new, and he is exactly the kind of person I've come looking for. But then as if it wasn't enough that Jesus had just publicly affirmed a guy that everybody hated... Luke writes this, as they heard these words, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So uh, Jesus makes a connection between what they had just seen and what he's going to say next. And I'd like to invite you to look at what he says next in Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 12. 
Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you shall be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now here we have two stories back to back. First, the true story of a crooked little businessman. Next to it, the parable of three businessmen. In each of the two stories, there is sort of a, what you might call a hero and a villain. In the first story, the story of Zacchaeus, the hero and the villain were basically one and the same. The hero in Jesus' eyes was the villain in everybody else's eyes, this crooked little tax collector who made a lot of money and in the end used it for the kingdom of God. In the second story, there were actually two heroes and one villain, so to speak. And again, the two heroes uh, in the story were the two businessmen who made a lot of money and used it for the kingdom. Jesus, I believe, specifically told this story, this parable, right on the heels of Zacchaeus' story. He said when everyone had just heard those things, he told them this parable. He did it specifically because he wanted to make a point. He wanted them to make a connection between the two. And I would suggest that at least, among other things, he wanted them to understand that their occupation was a sacred trust on which he expects a return. The text says that uh, there in verse 11, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because um, he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom was about to appear immediately. Maybe some of them were going, oh, I know why Zacchaeus was given all his money away, because the kingdom's coming. And Jesus was saying, no, no, no. In fact, uh, the master is about to leave uh, and he'll come back sometime later, the master's about to leave. You better use what you've been entrusted with, with, with wisely because you're going to give an account of it. So he specifically made the connection there because he wanted people to understand that their occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. Work is not a curse. It is a blessing. It is not to be squandered. It is to be stewarded. It is not a waste. It 
is worship. Which is why I believe God loves Mondays. All of you are called to full-time ministry using whatever God has put in your hands. Now, I know we have erroneously for years and years and years and years uh, kind of attributed that phrase to people like me or to Pastor Justin that, that we were called, I was called to ministry, you know, to full-time ministry when I was 25. No, you were all called to full-time ministry using whatever God has put in your hand, whatever passion He has put in your heart, whatever uh, uh, certificate He has put on your resume, you were called to full-time ministry. Some of you were called to full-time ministry here. Apparently, most of you were, or at least you've assumed that you were. Some of you actually, I believe, are called to full-time ministry taking whatever God has put in your heart, whatever he's put on your resume, to take that full-time ministry and do it in another part of the world. Not to leave behind your, your training and your, your, your skill set and your, your passion, but to leverage it and take it with you to the nations. We're talking this weekend and next about community on mission. You want to know one way that you, as a, a non-vocational religious worker... That's what they call people like me. I don't like the title, but do you want to know how, one way that you can go on mission with the people you saw on the screen? Go to work tomorrow morning on mission. Take that work and go overseas on mission. Crossworld is committed to helping you maximize the stewardship of your God-given wiring for eternal benefit here and around the world. And our vision, as you may know, is to send disciple-makers from all professions who will bring God's love to life in the world's least-reached marketplaces. So let me say it again. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. It is central to God's plan for world transformation. It is not peripheral. It is central. And today, this morning, I want to talk about why that is so. And secondly, what does that look like? What, what should it look like tomorrow morning if I actually turn my full-time job into full-time ministry? So first of all, why is your occupation a sacred trust on which God expects a return? Three very simple reasons. First of all, because God loves work. He designed it. He designed it as a pathway for worship and for world transformation. See, I think we have this false notion that um, what guys like me do is sacred and what guys like you do is secular. Uh, I, I'm, I'm called to ministry and you're, I don't know, you're called to be working stiffs, I guess. And that is just totally, totally false. There is not this sacred, secular divide in God's mind and heart. Everything is sacred. Whatever he has called you to is a sacred calling. The nobleman in the parable who represented God did not call his servants, give them Bibles and say, preach until I return. It says he called his servants, he gave them money and said, do business until I return. I don't think he would have used that analogy if he didn't see what you do 
in your everyday work world as something good and honorable. He, he gave them money and he said, do business until I return. He didn't call them out of business to serve him. He actually called them into business to serve him. Same thing with Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't tell him to leave his job to go into ministry. You, you would think if, he, if Jesus was going to say to anybody, you need to leave your line of work, he would have said it to a guy like Zacchaeus, but apparently he didn't. No, apparently whatever Jesus said to him caused Zacchaeus to decide that he was going to leverage his job for ministry. That's exactly what he proceeded to do. You know, it's mystifying to me how far we have drifted from God's uh, view, from God's heart for our work. In God's original masterpiece of creation, he put two primary relationships right at the center of his masterpiece. One was man and his work. The other was man and his woman, his wife. Those two relationships were like right at the center of that masterpiece that he had made. And he put them there as a means by which humanity was to glorify him. By which humanity was to demonstrate his magnificence, his goodness, his creativity, his order, uh, everything that he had done to make this incredible world. You see the man-work relationship right off the start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's before sin entered the world. You know this, that work was not a part of the curse. Frustration in work became part of the curse, but work was not a part of the curse. It was the masterpiece. It was part of the masterpiece. He put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the word that's used there, translated work, is the very same word that is used in other parts of the Old Testament that is translated serve, minister, or worship. Very same word. For example, God said to Pharaoh in Exodus 7.16, Let my people go that they may serve me or worship me, depending on your translation. It's the very same word as here, work. Or um, the Levites' ministry in the tabernacle described in Numbers 3 and Numbers 4, multiple times it is that same work. Their work of service in the tabernacle. Same word, work, serve, worship, same word. God designed work as an act of worship. That's why I believe Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And we'll talk about reward in a minute. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There's the work and serve in the same phrase. Whatever your work is, do it hardly because you are serving the Lord. It is an act of worship when you go to work tomorrow morning, or it ought to be. We are called to fill the earth with worship through the man-work relationship and to fill the earth with worshipers through the man-wife relationship. That relationship, this man-wife relationship, is described a few verses later there in Genesis, where it says, A man 
shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then he actually puts the two of those relationships together in Genesis 1.28 where, where, where he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How do you do that? Through the man-woman relationship. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. How do you do that? Through the man-work relationship. In other words, you fill the earth with worshipers who will worship me through their work by discovering and developing and harnessing and ruling over the riches and wonders that are hidden in this magnificent masterpiece that I have created. The wonders of mathematics and botany and and architecture and design and the culinary arts. How many of you like eating food? I love food. I know it doesn't really show, but I love food. My wife is a fabulous cook. Do you know that when you, maybe you work at a restaurant, maybe you work in the back cooking this stuff, when you cook a nice meal to put out there on the table, that is an act of worship. God didn't make everything taste like green beans. I don't know if you noticed that. Why did he make us so that we could taste thousands of different tastes and textures? It's because he is a good God. He's a magnificent God. And when you bring out the taste and texture and all whatever that is that goes into why we enjoy food, you are glorifying God through your work. You do that as an act of worship to God. The guy at the table may not be a worshiper, but you can do it as an act of worship. And I'm not kidding you. Um, you know John Berger, whenever I, one of my co-workers, John Berger, whenever we have him over for dinner, I'll, before we sit down and eat, I'll ask if he would, uh, if he would uh, offer the invocation for the worship service because I, I, I really believe that I can worship God through enjoying my food. God created man and his work and man and his wife to fill the earth with worshipers who would worship him through what they do by bringing out the magnificence in his creation. And when humanity chose to rebel against God, it was as if the thief of all thieves cut right from the middle of his masterpiece those two relationships, rolled it up, stuffed it under his jacket, and he has been shredding it and trashing it, trashing them ever since. I mean, just think of it. He took human sexuality that one part that was right at the center of his masterpiece, and he has turned it into the number one undisputed object of illicit, perverse, criminal, exploitive human behavior that has hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, totally in bondage to this perversion of that beautiful masterpiece that he has created. All you have to do is look at the news to know that if that hadn't happened, there would be no news. I mean, that's all we talk about today. That's, that, that is the work of the enemy, trashing that beautiful part of his masterpiece. And he has done the same thing to the man-work relationship. He has reduced it to meaningless drudgery for some, money-hungry greed for others, unnecessary evil for most, and something to escape from on Fridays, but certainly not to thank him for on Mondays. And it's our privilege to restore that masterpiece to the beauty that God intended for it. He is calling us to change that destruction that has taken place. So your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work. 
Work is worship. Secondly, because God loves profit. Profit is not evil. Greed is evil. Exploiting your workers to make a profit is evil. But profit is not evil. Profit is good. God made that as part of how life should work. God so loves profitable business that the three heroes in these two stories were the three guys who made a lot of money and used it to advance his kingdom. Now, Zach did it, obviously, through greed and exploitation, but when he got saved, his greed and exploitation was transformed to generosity and integrity, and God was pleased. So, your work is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work, because God loves profit, and thirdly, because God loves reward. He loves to reward those who take what He has given them and use it for His glory. To the guy with the tenfold return, what does he say? Well done, good job. But he doesn't stop there, did he? No, he said, well done, good job. You have been faithful in little. I'm going to put you in charge of ten whole cities. See, he doesn't stop there because what you do in this life doesn't end in this life. What you do in this life has a direct and exponential impact on how you enjoy your eternity. Now, I'm not saying by that that your works is how you get there. We sung this morning, it is all by grace. There is nothing I can do to work my way to heaven. But what I do with what He has given me in this life will have a direct and exponential impact on my eternity. He says, you're going to be in charge of ten cities. And and these weren't ten broken cities like we have in our world today. Because if you note in verse 15, it says, When he returned, having received the kingdom. This is future still. He's given them ten rule over ten glorious kingdom cities. Kind of, kind of like it was back in the beginning. I believe in the millennium. So he's given them these ten glorious cities, not ten wrecked cities. Who'd want, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to rule over one wrecked city in our country. But these are ten glorious cities. The point is clear. What you do with what you have here directly and exponentially impacts your eternity. So folks, think about this. Do not squander tomorrow morning. It is a sacred trust. And God expects a return. Not just on what this guy does and what that guy does and what this guy does, but what all of us do with what he's entrusted to us. So now, and why is that? Well, there you go. Three reasons. Because because God loves work, because God loves profit, and because God loves reward. But now to the question, so what does it look like? How do I turn my full-time job into full-time ministry? How do, how, do I, how do I do my work as unto the Lord, as Paul says? I mean, does that mean that what I do is I fill my pocket with tracks and kind of, when I go in the men's room, I leave one on the urinal and hope that somebody picks it up? Is that what it means to do work as ministry? Does it mean cornering somebody in the lunchroom and making them talk to me about Jesus? I don't think so. I'd like to suggest uh, about six very simple things that we can all begin doing that will turn our work 
into an act of worship and will open doors to minister to people with the glory of God. First of all, love God supremely. It all starts by loving God supremely. Work as ministry is way, 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 way more about who you are than what you do. The greatest commandment ever uttered from the mouth of God was what? Someone asked Jesus one day, and he kicked it right back and said, what do you think? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is the number one. That is where it all begins. Work as ministry begins with your relationship with God. Anything of value that happens on Monday morning is simply an overflow of what is going on in cultivating your relationship with God. Zacchaeus, for example, was so excited about what Jesus had done in his life that, that day that he couldn't wait for Monday. Monday was going to be a different story for Zacchaeus. You know, he didn't say, after he got saved, I hate Mondays and people hate me and my boss thinks he's God. He, his boss actually did think he was God. That's what Caesar thought. But that's not what he said. No, no, his life had been so powerfully impacted that he couldn't wait to get to work on Monday. Monday morning for him and his customers was going to be so different. Can you imagine walking up to, to, to the door of, uh, of Howard and Ruth and saying, Good morning, folks. Uh, yeah, you know me, Zacchaeus. Uh, last year, you guys, uh, I charged you... Uh, $4,000 in taxes. Actually, it should have been three, so I'm going to pay you back four to one. I owe you 4000 bucks. Wouldn't that be fun to go to work on Monday morning? I mean, do you think they'd be talking about that for a while? I think the whole town would be talking about that. Monday morning was totally different for him because his relationship with God was just flowing out in normal ways. You don't rip people off, so I'm going to pay restitution. Uh, Monday morning was transformed for Zacchaeus because of what happened in his life with God. And that's where it all begins with us. If you're, not, if you're not cultivating your relationship with God, please just keep your mouth shut. You can do more harm than good by opening your mouth to get in a conversation about this Jesus that you love when your life doesn't reflect it. Now, I'm not saying be perfect. We'll talk about that too. But be cultivating your love for God because that's what it's all going to flow out of. Secondly, just do your work with excellence. You ought to be among the best employees, the best managers, the best CEOs in the world. I'm not saying you should be the best. You might not be the best computer programmer. You might not have as many smarts as this guy, but you better be the best that you can be. Don't ever rip off your employer by giving him or her substandard work. That does not glorify God. So number one, you love God supremely. Number two, you just do your work with excellence. Do the best job you can. Number three, be people of integrity. Now what I mean by that is that, you know, just because you seek to do your work with excellence doesn't mean you, you're perfect. You still mess up. You still say things or do things that, as a follower of Jesus, you really shouldn't have said. Or really shouldn't have done. So when you mess up, admit it. Don't pretend you're something that you're not. 
Integrity is when there is alignment between who you say you are and who you are. So if you say or do something that doesn't reflect who you are in Christ, then make that right. Go to, you know, if you treat somebody poorly in a meeting, don't just sweep that under the carpet and start treating them nice from now on. You go back and say, you know, yesterday, Jim, in that meeting, I said something that really was disrespectful to you, and I'm sorry. I, I'm a follower of, of, of Christ, and I, I try to live my life in a way that pleases Him. That was wrong. Would you forgive me? I think Jim might pay attention the next time if you live your life of integrity like that. You know, when we first moved to Kansas City back in 2010, uh, where I had been living previously up in Canada, I, I didn't have to pay for internet. Um, it was provided where we lived. And so when I, we moved into our own house in Kansas City, I didn't want to pay for internet. Like, I didn't want to pay $39 a month for internet, so I stole it from my neighbor. I, he, he hadn't secured his internet. So, okay, it wasn't really stealing. If he doesn't want to secure his internet, and I can piggyback off his internet, piggyback off his internet. So, I stole it from my neighbor for about two years. And one day I was thinking about that. I guess I'm just, God was probably working on a lot of other sin in my life, so he didn't get to that one because he knew it just crushed me. But one day I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, that's, that's really stealing, isn't it? Like, there's lots of Saturday mornings I'd want to read the paper, and the stupid internet wouldn't work. You know, I never went over to Celsius and said, Hey, Bob, could you reboot your stupid internet? It's not working very good. So if I wouldn't go and say that to Bob, then I must be doing something that yeah, isn't really right. So I decided, well, then I'd better be a man of integrity and go and pay for my own internet. That's kind of like saying I'm just not going to treat my coworker bad anymore, but I'm not going to. Apologize, so I thought, no, that's I'm, I'm going to go buy my own internet, but I need to talk to Bob. So um, we invited Bob and Diane over for dinner, and I was sitting at the table and I said, "Hey, Bob, I got something to confess to you." He goes, "What's that?" I said, "Well, I've been stealing your internet for the last couple of years, piggybacking on your unsecured network, and..." Um, God just convicted me. That's not right. And I want to ask you to forgive me. He said, sure. Now, I don't know uh, what Bob thought. I don't know what he said to Diane when he went home that night. But I do know this. Whereas before he thought I might be perfect, he knows who I am, what I do. Now he knows I'm real. And my neighbor Bob would much rather live next to somebody who is real and seeks to live with integrity than somebody who's perfect. He can't ever become perfect, so why would he ever want to become like me if he thinks I'm perfect? A friend of mine, Eric, who says, he says um, about his co-workers, they don't expect me to be perfect, they just hate it when I pretend like I am. And we do that a lot. That's not integrity. So number one, you want to turn your work into ministry? Just love God supremely. Just, just focus on pouring his word into your life and enjoying fellowship with him and, and learning and loving him and then do your work with excellence and be a person of integrity. Number four, take time for people. Take time for people. Jesus summarized the essence of life in four words. Love God, love people the two greatest commandments ever uttered from the mouth of God. You love God. You love God supremely, and you start to take time for people, to love people. And, and 
the doors will open. Trust me. Natalie, a friend of ours, uh, had been coaching her friend Janet in some simple steps that she could take to begin to see her work as worship, her work as ministry. And one of the things that um, Natalie said to Janet was she said, "You, you need to slow down enough to actually see people. And so Janet thought, okay, I think I can work on that. So one day Janet was standing in line at a bank, and she noticed ahead of her a man of Asian descent who seemed to be having some trouble filling out a form. And so she helped him, and when she was done, she, she thought, well, that, that felt good, I can do this. So they're, they're um, walking out of the bank at the same time, and she turns to the man to say goodbye, and just, just about to introduce herself, my name, and he says, I know who you are. She kind of looks at him like, how does he know who I am? He said, you're the lady who buys sushi in my store every Tuesday. Here she had been conducting business with this guy for months and had never seen him. Slow down and take time for people. Then fifthly, if you cultivate your love for God, do your work with excellence, live with integrity, and take time for people, that's about 90% of the work. The last 10% is where it really gets fun. Number five, just watch and pray. Just watch for what God is doing. Watch for God to open doors and be praying. God, help me to see you when you open a door. Help me to be ready to step through it. You don't have to go kicking doors down to talk to people about Jesus. You have to be intentional, like Mark was saying last night. And part of being intentional is thinking about it. Talking to God, saying, God, help me to be aware of the opportunity you put in my path today. Help me to see when you open a door. You know I want the door. You know I want to talk to people about you uh, with all my heart. But you've got to open the door. So just watch and pray. Just relax. Don't get all uptight about... You've got to get the word, a word for Jesus and just relax. Love God, love people. Watch and pray and see what happens. Bob is a business guy. He works in downtown Kansas City and he had never realized until recently challenged uh, by a friend of his that, that God had actually given him his work as a sacred trust. So uh, Bob began looking and praying for open doors. So he's driving to work one day And he was just pulling on the on-ramp to get on the highway when he looks over to his left and he sees these two guys under the bridge beating the snot out of a third guy. So he quick whips his car uh, off the on-ramp and drives in under the bridge and jumps out of his shiny Beamer. And he yells at these guys and says, Hey, you guys, what are you doing? Leave that guy alone. Well, now Bob is not a really big guy. And so when he started yelling at these two guys, they left the guy alone and they started advancing on Bob. Now, Bob... Might not be big, but he's pretty quick on his feet. He said, you might want to think about what you do next because I'm an off-duty police officer and I've already called for, for backup. With that, they turned tail and ran. I guess whoever is mentoring him hadn't got to the lying part, but it worked, okay? So he goes over and he helps this poor guy off the ground. He puts him in the back of his car and he asks him where his camp is and he drives him to his camp. He gets him to his camp. He pulls out his wallet to give him some money and the man says to him, I don't want your money. What I need is a job. Bob Bob said his jaw just almost hit the steering wheel. Do you know why? Because Bob's work is bringing jobs to Kansas City. That's what he does. And it was as if God was saying to him, you just watch what I can do if you'll just watch and pray and ask me 
to open doors. So, you love God supremely, you do your work with excellence and integrity, you take time for people, and then you watch and pray. And then the last thing is just tell them what you know. When God opens a door, when He helps you to see an opportunity to ask them a, a great question or to, to respond to a situation, however He opens a door, when He does, just tell them what you know. Tell them what He's doing in your life. Tell them why you love Him. You know, Jesus, in some of His last words before leaving earth, said, you shall be my lawyers, didn't He? No, He said, you shall be my Witnesses. What is the difference between a witness and a lawyer? There's a big difference. You see, a lawyer's job is to convince somebody, right? A witness's job is simply to tell what he knows. And if he crosses the line and tries to start convincing the jury, what happens? His, his, his witness is compromised. They think there's something, there's something wrong here. His job is not to convince anybody. His job is simply to tell what he knows, tell what he's seen, tell what he experienced. That's our job. We don't have to convince anybody of anything. We just have to tell them what we know when God opens the door. Tell them what he's done in our life. Tell them how they can know him too. And leave the rest to him. You know, God loves Mondays because God loves work. And God loves work because He created it as a means for us to rule over His world as an act of worship. Whether you are making meals in Chick-fil-A or whether you are the CEO of your own company or anything else in between. He made work as a means to rule over His creation to bring out the magnificence of who He is. I like to imagine God getting up Monday morning and exclaiming not, TGIF, thank God it's Friday. Well, you'd have the days mixed up anyway. But rather saying, T-M-I-M, thank me, it's Monday. And then as he uh, watches this flood of humanity pouring out of their homes over the world, millions and millions of his servants, he leans in a little closer with joyful anticipation of how his full-time ministers will worship him through their work and how through the overflow of their love for him, their excellence and integrity, their love for people, and their watchful prayer, he will open doors for them to display his magnificence. But I don't need to tell you, but I will anyway, especially because of what the theme of this week is, that there are millions, hundreds of millions of people who will flood the marketplaces of the world tomorrow with nobody, nobody to proclaim his glory through their work. And God is calling some of you to change that. I, I, I love coming into a church that is full of young children and young adults, you got your whole lives ahead of you. And you should never go through another missions conference, let alone any other time where you're under the teaching of God's word and say, well, 
I wonder who God might send next from our church body. No, it's not me. I'm not one of those missionaries. No, you should be saying, God, where do you want me to take what you've given me to proclaim your glory in the world? The highest known sale price ever paid for any work of art, as far as we know in history, was paid just about a year ago, last October I think it was, uh, by an anonymous buyer for Leonardo da Vinci's Portrait of Christ entitled Savior of the World. This is what it looks like. The 26-inch tall da Vinci painting pictures Christ with his uh, right hand upheld in blessing and in his left hand holding uh, a crystal sphere. It was once owned by Charles I of England, then it disappeared, then it resurfaced in 1900 when it was bought by a British collector, then it was sold again in 1958, and then in 2005 it was acquired by a consortium of art dealers um, for less than $10,000. They weren't really sure it was a da Vinci. It was so badly battered um, and uh, painted over, so they... um, they gave it to a, an art expert who spent the next five years painfully uh, restoring that piece of art to its original state, taking off the layers of paint that had been put on it and, and restoring it. And um, after five years of work, it was examined by experts and it was actually declared to be an authentic da Vinci. And um, it was sold last October for $450 million. The next most expensive piece of work anywhere in the world had been $300 million a few years before. Isn't that amazing? A portrait of our Savior. 26-inch portrait. $450 million. Now you tell me, what made the difference between a $10,000 portrait and a $450 million portrait? What did it take? It took a group of people who recognized the intrinsic value of that piece of art. And it took at least one person who knew the original really well in order to be able to restore it to its original beauty. And I would suggest it will require no less of us today to restore the masterpiece of creation to its original beauty so that the master artist is recognized and adored for who he really is. Millennia of lukewarm religion, spiritual hypocrisy, stifling legalism, sexual perversion, greedy exploitation, workplace oppression, and more have have obscured the true beauty of that masterpiece and of the artist, like the layers of paint and debris on the Da Vinci original, and it will not be removed without painstaking sacrifice. It will not be removed by you simply slapping a tract down on a restaurant table with your 50-cent tip. That's going to take a whole lot more painstaking effort than that. But if a man will labor for five long years to restore a 26-inch painting of Jesus to its original state and a worth of $450 million, how much more time and sacrifice is the Savior of the world, the true Savior of the world, worth to us? Way more. Way more.
God loves Mondays. And he loves what you do. And he longs for you to get in the game as never before by doing your work as an act of worship. Yes, right here in Georgia. And some of you somewhere else in the world. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your amazing um, work in this world, in creating this world, in creating us, in um, allowing us as very imperfect human beings to be involved in such a glorious task as proclaiming your true worth and glory to this world. Lord, um, as we pray today, as we think today of our workers around the world, we pray that their hearts might be encouraged, that they would know that they are doing something of great value, that in those moments where they feel alone, maybe where they feel forgotten, where they feel insignificant, that they would remember that you are worth it all. And uh, may we as a church family know how to encourage them in that. And Father, may we um, not look at them as the only ones who've been called by you to ministry, but may we see our, our day tomorrow and our week ahead and in the months to come differently than we've ever seen it before if we haven't seen it as you intended it to be. Help us to serve you with all of our hearts in whatever you've given us to do.